My name is Sean Murphy. I'm a professor of international law at George Washington University Law School and a member of the UN International Law Commission. I'm here today with Judge Thomas Bergenthal, formerly a judge of the International Court of Justice and also a professor emeritus at George Washington University. We will spend about an hour or so discussing the life and career of Judge Bergenthal, uh, broken into two parts. So this is part one of our interview. Uh, Judge, you were born in 1934 in what is today uh, Slovakia, and then you spent uh, part of your youth in the Jewish ghetto of Kelsha in Poland. I'm interested in asking you a little bit about that early period of your life and particularly interested in the influence of your parents on you, particularly with respect to the values that they passed along to you that you think continued with you as you moved through your life and career in the field of international law. Well, you, you notice that I was born in 1934, which was not a particularly good time to be born for especially somebody who was Jewish. Um, and it happened as a sort of an accident in some ways. When Hitler came to power, my father, who was born in Poland, had worked in Berlin for many years. But when Hitler came to power, he left and with a friend bought a small hotel in the Tatra Mountains. Mm. And uh, my, my mother, who was uh, born in Göttingen in, in Germany, uh, was sent by her parents to, in order to break up a prior relationship uh, to, to go to a hotel to rest. Ah. And what is so interesting is that my, my parents were engaged three, we, three days after they met. Oh, wow. Which is, and we always thought maybe this was an arranged marriage, but she never admitted it, so mm. I still don't know hmm. what happened. Love at first sight, maybe. It, it uh, must have been. It was, though, of course, the conditions were strained. Um, my, my parents were not uh, religious. Uh, they didn't come from religious families. My father had studied at the University of Krakow, had studied law, and then went to, to Germany. Um, they, I think they were bringing me up the way they were, which was just people who, who were sort of felt quite comfortable in the modern world in, in which they lived. And of course, uh, having to some extent experienced discrimination where, where people who did not support the idea of discriminating against any group. Mm -hmm. So it was a liberal, mm -hmm. uh, open uh, family. And I, I think that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we spoke German and Polish at home. Uh, when I was alone with my father, we spoke Polish. When, mm -hmm. I was, when my mother and father were together, we spoke German. My mother spoke no Polish, so it, it was, one grew up sort of in a, in a dual world, yet... A transnational very, world very in much many so, ways, yes. yeah. Well, you said that this was a dangerous time to be born in this part of the world uh, as a Jew. Um, during World War II, your family was swept up in the Holocaust, and you ended up being one of the youngest survivors of the Nazi concentration camps at Auschwitz and Sausenhausen. And you've recounted your experiences in those camps in the book, A Lucky Child, which was published in 2009, and I think now is translated into something like 14 
or 15 foreign languages and no doubt more uh, to come in the future. Uh, there's lots I could ask you about those times uh, in the camps, uh, but let me put this question to you and you can expand beyond it as you wish. Uh, I believe you said at one point you were lucky to get into Auschwitz, which is a rather counterintuitive thing for someone uh, to say. So can you explain a little bit that particular surprising statement and maybe more generally uh, your reflections mm -hmm. on the camps? Well, let me first say something about my book because it has just been published in the People's Republic of China mm. in, in translation, so I have to advertise it, of course. Um, now I forgot the question you asked me. Well, basically, you had this surprising statement right. of I was lucky to right. get into Auschwitz, and uh, yes. what are your thoughts on that? Actually, w what usually happened in Auschwitz, when you arrived at the ramp where, with, by train, people were ordered out by the SS, and then women and men were separated, and children and old people, sick people, were immediately taken to the crematorium in the gas chamber. When we arrived, we arrived from a work camp because after the ghetto in Kelze, I, we moved into a work camp also in ghetto. Yeah, so I think they must have thought that there were all of the people who were coming were people no longer sick, or, but people who uh, working capacity. Mm -hmm. So there was no selection. Hmm. If there had been, I would never have gotten off that ramp alive, hmm. really. So in that sense, I was very lucky. Of course, who wanted to be in Auschwitz? <laughs> right. Another step in surviving the whole experience, though, yes. getting to the camp. Um, tell me a bit more about how you think your time in the camp, camps and, and the eventual um, ability to, to, to survive this period uh, influenced uh, your later decisions to pursue law, to become an international lawyer, and in many respects devoting yourself to the field of human rights in particular? Well, when you, when you think about it, it's really a natural sort of tra uh, progression. Mm -hmm. uh, when you've experienced what I've experienced, you always ask yourself, well, I must owe something to the, to the world. And now what could I do? I was very bad in math and science, so I couldn't become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and since my father had studied law, uh, that seemed to be something. And in Europe, it was always said, you studied law if you didn't know what to do, because with a law degree, you can do almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, as when I began in college, and then uh, when I went to law school, I realized that there were that international law was there, that there were a lot of things that were happening, uh, and uh, they needed to be strengthened. And mm -hmm. I was interested in what was happening, so uh, that was something that that then appealed to me. Uh, and then you know, once I, for example, I, I was interested in the UN Human Rights Commission at the time, and also that at the European Court and Commission of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And that just captivated me, and I never really got out of it. Um, Many people, though, going through an experience like that might actually become very bitter about law and institutions and their ability to corrupt society um, and would, would turn away from that path. Um, 
leading a life that you know would be more broken maybe than than the one you've led um, any reason why you didn't go down that route and and instead dedicated yourself really to try to building up the law well I've always thought that people who took those positions are the cynics that that is an invitation to total inaction mm -hmm. and if you uh, if you believe that it's important to do something uh, to improve other people's lives, uh, then you simply do it and uh, hope something good will come of it. Uh, not you don't necessarily believe that it's going to be nirvana, uh, but you feel you have an obligation to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I always find cynicism and uh, to be totally in action and an excuse for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's sort of been my attitude. Not that I've always believed that tomorrow we're going to be in a brand new world. Uh, but if we, everybody does his job with good faith, we get someplace. Mm -hmm. So after the war uh, in 1951, you emigrated from Germany to the United States. Why the United States? Well, first of all, I should tell you that I found my mother two years after we were separated. Mm. And she happened to be in Germany. My, my father died in, the, in Buchenwald. And um, then I went to school in Germany, which was sort of a strange experience when you're surrounded by your murderers in, in many ways. Um, but I I've gradually felt comfortable. But in that age, between 1946 to 50, 51, in Europe, America was sort of uh, paradise. Every, we kids thought of chewing gum and crew mm -hmm. cuts, large cars. And uh, my mother's uncle lived in the United States. So uh, it was clear that I was going to go, but I was going to come only for one year. Mm -hmm. But once I got here, I wasn't going to leave again. Did you ever think about going to Israel, which is something many Jews that survived the Holocaust? Yeah. Uh, I, I thought of it uh, initially because I thought, well, this is going to be a year in the United States. I come back. I don't want to stay in Germany. Uh, not because I was, after the war, badly treated, because I thought if I lived in Germany for the rest of my life, the experience of the war will never leave me because mm. I will see people who look like the, some of the mm -hmm. murderers. And um, so I felt I had to go someplace. Israel seemed to be, at that point, uh, you know, everybody was very optimistic. Uh, I'd never been there. And I found, once I was in the United States, that this was really the country I, when I, I came in December of 1951 to the US, in January of 52, I was already in high school. Mm. And, uh, you know, this was a different world. Mm -hmm. And I, if, I, if I could help it, I was never going to leave this place. Mm -hmm. And I must say, over the years, uh, my American soul has <laughs> grown. Yeah, well, America can do that to yes. people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you completed high school. You also went to college in the United States. You eventually made your way to New York University for law school. And you completed your first law degree there then eventually moved on to Harvard University where you did your master's of law and your doctoral, um, your, your doctorate of law. 
Tell me a little bit about the professors at those institutions, the ones that perhaps influenced you the most or were important mentors that um, perhaps pushed you in the direction that you eventually took. Yes. Well, one of them was Professor Louis Sohn, who came from Lwów in, in Poland at the time, um, who actually was also at the San Francisco conference before. Mm -hmm. A professor of international law had written the first case book on UN law, which, you know, in, in, in those days was something very unusual. And Professor Richard Baxter, also a professor of international law, who eventually ended up on the International Court of mm -hmm. Justice, but unfortunately died within a year. But he was a specialist in air law uh, in addition. Um, so these two were sort of my, uh, these were my guiding stars. Was, was Baxter at that time already deeply into international law? Yes, okay. very much so. Uh -huh. uh, and he had a military background. Mm -hmm. So he was particularly interested in military law, the, the Geneva Conventions and, and those things. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, but I also had a course from him on international aviation law. Uh, but they were two totally different people, mm -hmm. uh, and th that made it so much fun. There were, of course, others, Professor Fisher, uh, also uh, at the Harvard Law School, and um, Professor Katz, who taught a sort of tra international transition course. Uh, it, when, at NYU, the, we basically had three years of basic common law. Right. And I had one course in international law, two hours only. Mm -hmm. But once I got to Harvard, it was just being in paradise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I could take any international course I wanted. They had a great library and interesting professors. Uh, and then it was sort of natural for me with the focus on my, with my background to focus on international human rights, to find out what's happening in the world. Uh, UN and international organizations were the things I was interested in. At a time when America was not interested in any of, any of this, but the Harvard Law School, it was all happening. Well, that is interesting um, in part because the, the choice you made for your doctoral thesis <laughs> was not in the field of international human rights. Instead, you ended up uh, writing what I think is a path-breaking book on lawmaking in the International Civil Aviation <laughs> Organization that was published in 1969 and remains one of the seminal studies of that particular Nobody dared to go organization. into that <laughs> Maybe so. Um, why that topic, though, if that wasn't necessarily the, the, the subject matter area that you wanted to pursue? Well, uh, when I uh, actually, after I got my master's at, at Harvard, I started teaching, and then I came back three years later. In the meantime, I'd written a number of articles on the European community and on, on the European Convention. And, and so when I came back, I said to Louis, and I would like to write something on human rights. He said, no, you know too much about it already. Mm. I want you to write about an international organization you know nothing about. Hmm. So I started to think, which organization didn't I know anything? And that was the International Civil Aviation Organization. Mm. And I found it was a great experience. Uh, Would I, you recommend to someone starting out in the field today to do that, experiment with 
an area that's not your first love? Uh, I, I think it was a great pedagogic advice that mm -hmm. he gave me. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, I, I learned to see really how international organizations operate. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I concluded, which one shouldn't be saying in a law school, uh, I found that a great deal of law is made by international organizations when lawyers are not there. Mm. Because when lawyers are present, they of course realize that what is happening is really law creating. And if their governments don't want this to be law that it will come out, they will object and try to push it differently. Technicians and others who are not lawyers, they don't realize what they're doing from a legal <laughs> point of view. Mm -hmm. And so a great deal of law was created uh, in this being created, the ICAO, mm -hmm. uh, because lawyers aren't always there. Mm. You're only there when the legal committee meets. Right. Uh, so my advice to anybody who wants to create a lot of international law and in international organizations, keep the lawyers in the cafeteria. So. <laughs> I'm not sure the lawyers would appreciate <laughs> no, that. No, I'm but, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of law is uh, is generated through practice. Yes, You're absolutely yes. right. Yeah. So um, when you finished your studies, there were various opportunities in front of you. You could have tried to join an international organization. You'd been studying them. You could have uh, pursued private practice, uh, perhaps in the area of civil rights, human rights, to the extent that was there. Um, you might have gone into government uh, service. You instead became a law professor. Why? Well, I, I should tell you, I wasn't that clear in my mind what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought I should be doing something in, the, in with government and maybe with an international company. I, I never thought of practice. I want one of my classmates who, who were working in the summer in law firms in New York uh, took me on a tour. And that's, I decided that's not what I want to do with my life, uh, to be sitting there. And they were so proud of the fact that they didn't have to even have to sharpen their pencils, <laughs> that there was somebody who did mm. do that for them. And I thought that's not what I mm. wanted to do. And then a job opened up in the in the U.S. International um, Claims Commission, mm -hmm. and they were looking for a young international lawyer who spoke Polish. So I figured, I don't think there are going to be many of those competitions. So I applied for it and didn't apply for anything else. Mm. And they didn't get the budget they needed, oh. so I didn't have the job. Okay, and but. It, a teaching job in legal method opened up at the University of Pennsylvania, and I took it. Okay. That's how I got And then I realized, despite the fact that teaching legal method is not very exciting, I, I decided that I really enjoyed teaching. Mm. And that's how it all happened. A bit of serendipity in very the way so. one carves yes. out the path yes. of one's yeah. career. Yeah. I should tell you, too, that in those days, in the U.S. particularly, I don't know how, what it was in other places. If you were interested in teaching international law, you had very few opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was just writing the second part of, of my book, and I remembered what happened when I went to the, what we used to call the slave mart, where you were interviewed for teaching jobs. Uh, very few 
law schools were teaching international law at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you were interested in international law, they, they figured you really weren't anybody to teach contracts or torts mm. or property. So it, it was very difficult initially uh, to, to get, a, get a teaching job. Only the big law schools were, were teaching in the field. Um, so it took a while also to, to find something. And that's why I thought the international organization, I mean the U.S. government, and then getting into teaching was the way. Mm -hmm. So you eventually teamed up with your former professor, Louis Sohn, yes. to uh, write what was really the first American textbook on human rights. It was uh, published in 1973, and it's called The International Protection of Human right. Rights. W what motivated you and Sohn to develop that textbook? We, we, we decided that very few American law schools were teaching in that field. And we reasoned that probably more would be teach, more professors would like to teach it if they knew more about the field, if there were materials that they could use. Mm -hmm. So that's why we decided to, to put it together. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, what we did was we, we put it together in those days all in mimeograph form before Xerox and all of that. And we sent it to sort of three, 13 friends of ours, mm -hmm. both in Europe and in the US, and said, what do you think of it? Well, of course, when they went through it, we, we knew already we had 13 professors who mm -hmm. were going to be mm -hmm. teaching human rights. Good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the real purpose was to encourage uh, yeah. teaching of, of international human rights. And Louis had already published his, his UN uh, casebook um, so, and we divided up the work really that he, he focused more on UN institutions, I focused more on regional institutions. Mm -hmm. And again, it was a great uh, learning experience in, in many, so many ways. And my impression is it had an influence in building up the teaching of human rights in American law schools. Yes, yeah. because we as American law professors, we are really hopeless when we have to teach something and there isn't a textbook right, right. or a casebook. So this helped. But we had a number of people in the Netherlands and I think in Scandinavian countries who were interested uh, and probably used the book more as a textbook than we as a casebook, mm -hmm. more because of the differences in teaching methods. Well, we could talk a lot about your career as an academic. You, you moved from one law school to another. At different times, you became the dean of the American University uh, law school for, for a period. Uh, but I'd actually like to pivot to um, your role as a judge on the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Um, what I think is interesting in part about this is that the United States is not a party uh, to the American Convention on Human Rights and therefore is not exposed to the jurisdiction of the Inter-American Court uh, of Human Rights. Yet you, as a U.S. national, uh, were nominated by Costa Rica and elected by the parties to the American Convention uh, to serve on that court, and you did so from 1979 to 1991. You were even the president uh, from 1985 to 1987. So how did that happen? How did an American end up uh, as one of the inaugural judges on the court and, and serve uh, for, for such a, a long period of time? Well, I should tell you first, because uh, you mentioned 
that I moved a lot. Mm -hmm. My kids, when they were asked, what does your dad do? And why are you here? Because they said, well, he can't keep a job more than five <laughs> years. <laughs> that was sort of, you know, until they grew up, they realized that wasn't quite my problem. Um, no, the, uh, what is interesting about the Inter-American Court too, uh, I had taught at Buffalo for a number of years, and then I was, uh, became a professor at the University of Texas Law School. And I taught a course there, uh, always in human rights, a seminar. And I kept telling the students, there is just be, they're in the process of establishing an inter-American court of human rights. The U.S. isn't in it because it really wasn't ratifying human rights instruments at the time. It's a pity, so no American will ever be on the court. Hmm. And I kept saying that every time we had the meeting. And then one day the phone rings. <laughs> And it's the, somebody introduces himself with a Latin American accent that he is the Costa Rican ambassador to, the, to Washington and the OAS, and that Costa Rica was planning, wondered whether it would be honored if I accepted it. And I was sure it was one of my students goofing around, <laughs> and I didn't even dare jump on it. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> And so I just very politely said I'd have to talk to my, speak to my wife and, and could you leave me your telephone number? And he left the telephone number immediately when we hung up, I dialed the number and it was the Costa Rican wow, embassy. Okay. It was real. Yeah. Good technique. <laughs> um, and then that was uh, sort of half a year before the election. Uh, and I was elected to, to the court, which was one of the things that I consider one of the most exciting and most important jobs I ever had. But it came uh, all about Costa Rica sort of became the proprietor mm -hmm. of uh, the convention. Mm -hmm. And uh, Costa Rica decided to provide the seat for the court. Mm -hmm. And then the countries that were ratifying were mainly small countries. So the Costa Ricans worried that this would become, would become known as a banana republic court. Mm. So they decided they needed somebody from the big countries, either Brazil or the United States. And they came to Washington and kept, sort of asked people. And they kept getting my name because I had written an article on the convention that was being drafted and I'd written on the European Convention of Human Rights. So it was uh, really a, a, nat a natural. The problem was, and I, don't, I shouldn't be saying this on, on on an interview that I didn't know, even know at the time where Costa Rica was. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was in Latin America someplace, yeah. but not. Uh, and then I really fell in love with the, with the country. Um, Do you and, think there was also a sense of wanting to draw the United States into the I, system? I, very much so. Yeah. And as a result, uh, this was very much uh, almost an offer to the U.S. Mm because they could have picked some Brazilians. And, um, uh, unfortunately, and I was told that uh, there's never going to be another American until the U.S. ratifies mm. the convention. Uh, but it was a tremendously exciting time because we, this was the first court with the first seven judges uh, in a region that was still sort of occupied by dictatorial mm. regimes. Uh, even places where if you spoke for human rights, you were considered a lefty or, you know, uh, and to start this court uh, 
tremendously exciting. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, you're, you're, you're creating an entirely new institution. You have to figure out your rules, your procedures, eventually your jurisprudence. Uh, what about those early years? What were the big challenges that, uh, that you had to confront and uh, resolve? Well, first of all, of course, uh, drafting some instruments. We didn't, when we first came to Costa Rica, we didn't have a... They, they were great in offering us, in, in electing us, or the, some mm -hmm. of us. But then when we got there, there were no facilities. So actually, the, the first meeting of the court in Costa Rica was in the baths, in the swimming facilities of the Costa Rican Bar Association. Oh my. So you could hear kids screaming and laughing happily. Uh, then gradually, uh, you know, we, we got a building and everything else. The, the problem at the time was, among other things, um, that the commission which had existed before the convention came to power uh, suddenly felt that there was some higher institution above them and were just not sending cases to us for a while, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, and, and they felt that they knew everything that was to be known and we were just... Uh, so it took us almost the first six years, and we were elected for six years and could be re-elected once, uh, just to get some cases. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a problem. Uh, fortunately, we were able to adopt advisory opinions. So we didn't need governments uh, to bring cases to us. Uh, and that helped us sort of establish ourselves and sort of show that we knew what we, what we were doing. Uh, we we started that with one very important, the first disappearance case in any sort of international uh, court. Um, uh, and that's in some ways established us. Is this uh, the Velasquez? The Velasquez Rodriguez, Rodriguez case. case. Yeah. Um, we, of course, we immediately sort of started to establish relations with the European Court of Human Rights, and some of the judges came to us because we needed some sense of prestige in the region mm -hmm. at the time when the region was really not very receptive and interested in, in human rights. Uh, so in many ways, the first six years were sort of pu public relations mm -hmm. uh, work that had to be done. I remember uh, I was asked to draft a, a, a sort of, uh, rather, I was asked to meet with the Costa Rican legal advisor to discuss the agreement, the headquarters agreement. And I walk in uh, and the legal advisor, she was one person alone. Uh, she had just received her LLM from London. Hmm. And we discussed this and she says to me, why don't you draft it and then let me look at it. Really? So there was this you know, sort of uh, like you're, you're establishing a new household, right. a family thing. Uh, in that, and so Costa Rica was sort of the ideal place to have the, the people uh, believe in democracy. And, right, right. And that helped. But it wasn't easy. I, I think now the court is complaining about not having, uh, of having too many cases. Mm. In my days, we didn't get uh, too many cases. So looking back now, almost 40 years since the inception of the court. Do you think it's fulfilled the mission that it had, um, fulfilled the purposes that it was set up for? Has it affected the way things now operate in the Western Hemisphere? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, in many ways, what has happened in the Western Hemisphere 
uh, until quite recently, has been a movement towards de democratic regimes. Mm -hmm. And for a while, we were really all thought uh, it's no longer a cycled dictatorships and then back them up. And now it's getting a little fuzzier. But anyway, um, many more democratic countries have been established. Um, and, and that has helped. On the other, uh, and the court has had some impact on it. I, I don't think, um, I, I certainly don't think a very strong, large impact, because I don't think courts really are able to do that. But the court has gained standing and influence and has been able to affect certain developments in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it has played a, an important role. There's a big problem still in, in the region, in, in Latin America, particularly eco serious economic problems. Mm -hmm. uh, poverty is strong, uh, and that has its consequences. Mm -hmm. And there's very little a court can, can do about it. But I am, you know, the, in some ways, the European Court of Human Rights with its expansion, is now facing some of the problems that we faced uh, initially. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, the African court, which is the, the third regional court in existence, uh, has most of the problems. Uh, but the, these institutions are valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're never going to be 100%, have a 100% impact. Well, let me ask you a little bit about that comparative element um, as you say, there's a relatively young African court. Uh, we don't have an Asian court of human yeah. rights yet, but maybe at some point in the future. Uh, lessons learned from the inter-American experience uh, for, for these courts? Things that should be done, should not be done? Any reflections on that? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm glad you asked this question because uh, when you look at the world and you look at Asia, how large Asia is, mm -hmm. there is really no such institution. And it, it, human rights courts and commissions are very useful in solving individual human rights problems. The UN can deal with vast human rights issues. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you were planning a human rights tribunal, for example, for Asia, you probably would be wise to have a number of sub-regional mm. uh, tribunals because the, the, the vast expansion, mm -hmm. the differences. But it would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think these institutions have a role to play together with all kinds of with political organizations. Um, what, what are the lessons learned? I, I think you have to have people sitting on these institutions uh, who are committed to the idea. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have to be experts first, mm. because when I first came to the court out of the seven judges, there were initially maybe three who really had international legal experience, mm. but they were committed to the idea. Four of them had served in prisons. Uh -huh. So we had something in common. Yeah, sure. So those things are, are, very, are very helpful. Uh, those are probably the most important lessons to be learned. And then you just, you have to have good lawyers more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, lawyers who are willing to be cosmopolitan in terms of looking at the universality of human rights mm -hmm. and not just think that everything is regional. Uh, so learn something from what the Europeans are doing. Learn something what the U UN Council is doing. 
Um, that's very important. You can't have narrow-minded people sitting on these bodies. Right. Right. But so the commitment is probably the most important the thing. The design of the institution is important, but what I'm hearing you say is the personnel Very that you so. pick for them, yes. both in their experience and in their commitment, is, is critical. Very much yeah. so. Very much so. Uh, and you have to get enthusiastic about the subject. I mean, this is... Uh, you would want... I always say, I wish we could have had something like this in Europe before Hitler came to power. Right. Uh, it would have been difficult for him to do some of the things he did. Mm -hmm. So that's one type of institutional structure. A very different type is a commission of inquiry or a truth commission, uh, maybe established by the UN, focused on a particular country. And in that regard, uh, from 1992 to 1993, you served as a member of the United Nations Truth Commission for El Salvador, where you were looking into massive human rights abuses that occurred during El Salvador's, uh, I think, 12-year civil yeah. war. So it was quite a, an extensive period. What was it like for you being on that commission? You were, you were interviewing um, and taking statements from victims and witnesses of those abuses. Um, a little bit different from being on a court where you're receiving pleadings. Here you're directly in contact with the individuals. What, what, what did you feel about that? Well, I had one experience, for example, um, where there was a big massacre in El Mosate in, in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And one of the few survivors, I think she may have been the only survivor of one of those massacres where 500 women, children, babies were, had been killed. And she started to talk about describing what she was. And two minutes later, I could have finished her story mm. because it sounded so familiar to what I had experienced, had seen as a child. Oh, I see. Um, so some people said, Don't, haven't you suffered enough? Why do you have to sit, sit there and see this? But uh, the, the Truth Commission is a very useful thing because it allows people of families, uh, well, let me start back and tell you what I've experienced, what I've seen. A father or a brother or a sister taken away f by the dictatorial regime or, and shot on the assumption that they are cruel, that they are killers, and that they, they don't love their country. And so the children grow up believing that their fathers or sisters were bad people. Mm. Well, when you have a truth commission that investigates it and finds that what happened to you or you or you should never have happened mm -hmm. because some cruel people did this, it has a, it sort of helps people to live with what they suffered. Mm -hmm. uh, courts cannot quite do that because they are not, they, they are not individual oriented, even though they decide individual cases. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, to me, the truth commission experience was a very important one. Mm -hmm. I believe, for example, that it would have been very useful in Germany right after the war, in addition to the Nuremberg trial, to have a, a truth commission that had looked at the history. Mm -hmm. Because uh, not that Germany hasn't developed beautifully. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it's today probably the most constitution, best constitutional democratic regime in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but it would have been nice to know the real causes of mm -hmm. Hitler, because other countries 
may be facing those problems or maybe will be facing. And truth commissions can contribute to that. Having a truth commission and a court is the ideal situation mm -hmm. uh, in my mind. But um, we had problems on the truth commission initially to get people to come to us because they had been subjected to other commissions of inquiries that turned out to be fraudulent. Mm. So the people didn't believe that we were serious. So it took a long time to get them started. And as a matter of fact, we were supposed to finish in six months. We, we, we needed eight or nine months before we were finished. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was quite a difficult in many ways experience. But again, it was the chairman was the former president of Colombia. Uh, my other colleague, there were just three of us, it was former foreign minister of Venezuela and I, and then we had a large staff of young lawyers and sociologists and other people. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we got along very well. Mm -hmm. So that made, uh, that helped. And you think it's an important part in allowing a country to get past yes. a period like that, telling the story, providing the narrative that is... Yes, because it, it, it has sort of a built-in sense of a reconciliation. Mm -hmm. A case, a judicial decision can be tough in many ways. It's, whereas a truth commission that tells a story of both sides didn't do right necessarily, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it has an impact. And we, we sensed that because with the second part of when we were there, we began to see people beginning to be much more open and uh, talking about it. Um, the, the suspicions, uh, the fact that this might be a, just another institution uh, gradually seem to fall away. So I, I think it's, it's a very useful, it has to be done well. Uh, we, uh, we were fortunate in many ways. We had made a decision in the very beginning that we would not have any Salvadorans involved in our work hmm. because we felt that this was a small country where everybody knew it's just two and a half million people. There would be leaks and sure. intrigues and everything else. And it worked, it proved to be quite useful. But it meant we had to learn a lot about the history of the country. Well, I want to ask you a bit about the Human Rights Committee, the Human Rights Council, and in particular, the International Court of Justice. Uh, but uh, I think we'll end this part of the interview here and uh, we'll save those questions for part two. Wonderful.